0: All right, if you wanna if you wanna turn in your Bibles to Second Peter three, verses one through ten, or your iPhones, whatever you have in front of you. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder, that you should remember the word spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by, by water. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with the water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let these things, this one fact escape you, escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Let's just open in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just... We just thank you that you, what you say is true and that we can count on that, Lord, that you're a God who is, who is faithful in all things. And Lord, I, I especially thank you that you're faithful to your promises, Lord, and that you're a patient God, but you're also a holy and just God. And Lord, I just pray as time comes before us, Lord, that your word will uh, be spoken through him, Lord, that your spirit Uh, would work in our hearts that we would be convicted uh, of the truth that you have for us. I just pray this in your name. Amen.
1: Good morning. In the late uh, 1980s, a a band called R.E.M. came out with a song that uh, started with a rapid barrage of, of troubling signs of the times, and then it culminated in the song's title line, It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Now, uh, pinning down the exact meaning of an REM song is a little like explaining a Jackson Pollock painting, so I'm not, I'm not gonna try to do that. But the title line of that song captures the dismissive attitude of our world and of our culture toward any notion of a coming judgment at the hand of, of God. Both testaments in the Bible, Declare repeatedly that the end of the world as we know it is indeed coming. In the third and last chapter of Peter's second epistle, Peter tells us how godless men will respond to that declaration from God's Word, and then he tells us how we, as the people of God, must respond to that declaration of coming judgment. Originally, I was going to uh, go only as far as the first two verses of chapter 3, but because uh, those two verses finish out, they do double duty, they finish out the preceding theme and they introduce the theme of this chapter. And so in order to really get the context and the flow, I'm going to go further into this chapter than I had originally planned. But before I dive into chapter 3, I want to make sure that these first two chapters uh, first two verses of the chapter are seen in the proper context back in chapter 1 verses 12 to 15 peter expressed a very earnest desire that he hoped to see realized before he departed this earth and he and he knew that his departure was imminent that it would happen soon he said that he was striving diligently to stir up the churches by reminding them of things they already knew in which they were already established so that all of those believers would become so mindful of the truths revealed by God that they would be able to call them to mind at any time after His departure. And He then contrasted the absolute trustworthiness of the true Word of God in chapter 1 with the serious threat that the churches would face from the false word of false teachers in chapter 2. Now he circles back and restates the same earnest desire with which he introduced this whole contrast between the true word and the false word. Now that context is important because God has graciously handed to us a strong fortification And if we lay hold of it, it will protect us from being deceived by the subtle tricks of false teachers. Those who come as wolves in sheep's clothing. Who arise among the flock and try to lead both God's people and the unsaved away from the truth of Jesus Christ. The strong fortification that God has granted to us is minds. Enlightened and saturated with the Word of God. I want to be as clear as I can about something here that's very important. There's a lot of talk in our circles about biblical sufficiency, and I'm one of the, one of those doing a lot of that talking. But it's critically important that we recognize the connection between what Peter says about remembering, storing in our minds the written Word, and what he said at the end of chapter 1 about the source of the written word. That source is the Holy Spirit, who so superintended everything that was written down by the prophets, that the result was His word revealed to men. The Scriptures are not, Peter says, the product of human will. Now, words are just symbols of meaning, right? But the words in every faithful translation of the original text of the Bible in any language present the intent and the meaning that came from the mind of God, the Holy Spirit. Not the minds of men. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that the truths that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us as the people of God are things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and have not even entered The heart of man. So how do men get that stuff? (laughs) How do men get that knowledge, that amazing knowledge of of the very mind of Christ? There's only one way. God has to speak. And, And He has. All, beloved, all of the absolute authority and transforming power and strong protection that the Bible attributes to its own words... Is the absolute authority, transforming power, and strong protection of its author, the Holy Spirit, the true author of the Bible. The living and active power that the Bible claims of itself is the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Word. So what I've, I used to talk about the sufficiency of the Bible. I've stopped saying that because I think that's, that's only putting, that's presenting the end point. Now I talk about the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit through His Word. We can't miss that connection. We've got our emphasis wrong, and we're going to mislead people about what this actually is. It's not a magic book. It's the words of the Holy Spirit given through men to mankind. You with me? I hope so. Now, that's why Peter is so resolute about stirring up his beloved fellow saints to remember the words spoken and written down by both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. Chapter 3, verse 2. It's both the prophets and apostles. Now, of course, Peter isn't the only New Testament writer to give us the same prescription for being forearmed, protected, against the clever schemes and deceptively attractive lies of false teachers. And they are attractive. This is a common theme throughout the New Testament epistles. Paul points in 2 Timothy 3, again, to the very words of Scripture, the gramma, That means words constructed from letters of the alphabet and written down. He refers to those Sacred writings as God's gracious provision, both to equip us for ministry, to make us doers, and to protect us from the destructive lies of evil men and imposters who would present a serious threat to the flock of God. Just as Peter does in 2 Peter 2, Paul says these imposters would deceive while themselves being deceived. And they would proceed from bad to worse. I think we're seeing a lot of the worst part now, but it's going to get worse still. Immediately after Timothy was warned by Paul about these deceptive imposters, these wolves in sheep's clothing, Paul then gives to Timothy a vitally important exhortation that applies to every man of God and woman of God who wants to be powerfully used by God. He said, You, however continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on, he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Not profitable for some kind of stagnant personal holiness where we sit like bumps on the logs and enjoy being holy. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, equipped to do what God created and saved, recreated and saved us to do. In Ephesians four, which I won't go into, Paul uh, speaks of the again of the truth of God's word that we speak to each other as our strong fortification against being carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. This this warning about deceit, about the deceit of these false teachers comes up over and over and over. And every time it comes up, the fortification that's presented is the gracious Word of God. If you want to be firmly grounded in the real truth, undistracted and unscathed, by all of the very enticing falsehoods perpetrated by godless men, then know, beloved, know that God has already given to you and to His church the powerful protection that we need. The Spirit-given, Spirit-illumined, Spirit-empowered, living and active Word of God. With that powerful fortification set before us, both in reference to the warning... In the chapter before, and in reference to the warning he's about to give us in the chapter ahead, Peter now gives us that second warning. He tells us about a very specific falsehood that the church of Jesus Christ needs to be ready to recognize and to confront. In verse 3, he says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Now, I don't find anything in these verses in chapter 3 to indicate that these mockers are necessarily the same people that he warned about in chapter 2. It doesn't sound to me like these people in in chapter 3 are trying to mask their wicked intentions the way the false teachers were. They're not wolves in sheep's clothing. They're just wolves. He seems to be talking here about people who will shamelessly blast Anyone who, in their estimation, is naive or stupid enough to actually be concerned about what the Bible says of God's intention to judge sin and sinners. In his first letter, in First Peter 4, Peter said, Godless men will malign us. And literally, the word is blasphemous. And there he says they'll blaspheme us because we don't get excited about the things that they dearly love. We don't fall into the same excess of dissipation. We don't, we're not consumed by the, by doing, carrying out our fleshly lust the way they are. And they don't get it. They don't understand that at all. Now he says some will mock us. They'll ridicule us. They'll find us laughable for actually believing that we have anything to fear from the God that we trust and worship. And they will mock God himself Declaring him, in effect, to be either unrighteous or impotent with regard to sin. Peter says something at the end of verse 3 that's very illuminating. He says these mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. See, what you have here is lust-driven theology. Not revelation-driven theology, lust-driven theology. Men remaking God in their own corrupt image in order to justify following their own lusts. Consider how many philosophies and religions exist purely to allow people to justify living life on their own self-indulgent terms. Peter cuts right to the chase here. He tells us exactly where these... the the boastful confidence of these mockers of God will be catastrophically flawed. They will very confidently argue that anyone who fears being judged by the God of the Bible is a superstitious idiot. And to prove their open and shut case for that claim, they will simply point to the fact that God has had plenty of time to carry out the Bible's big threat. But hey, it hadn't happened. According to Peter, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now these men understand the propositions set forth in God's Word better than we think they might. They get that the Bible says Christ is coming back to fulfill both his promise of glorious salvation for his people and his threat of full judgment against everyone who has rejected him. But their assertion is, he's had plenty of time to do that. What gives? Even after all this time, they say there's still no evidence in all of human experience that there's actually a God out there who is both upset enough about the way men live, and powerful enough to do anything about it. So either there's really no God at all, or we don't need to be afraid of being judged by the God who is, because he apparently disagrees with the Bible about how bad our self-indulgent lives are. If he's actually there, he must be okay with what we're doing here, because he's had more than enough time to do something about. Of course, Peter wrote those words nearly 2,000 years ago. So the mockers have even more ammunition today. It turns out that even though this kind of mental dodgeball will gain a lot of traction in the last days, it's actually a very old argument. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 5. It's amazing, an amazing passage, verse 16. Isaiah 5, Verse 16, Yahweh of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show Himself holy in righteousness. Those things are going to happen. Then two verses later, Isaiah pronounces woe, and every time you see the word woe, you can read doom. Upon the mockers of his own day. And he tells us what those mockers had to say about God's warning of coming judgment. He says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. (laughs) That verse alone is very illuminating. He's saying the cords or ropes that pull sin along are cords of falsehood. Falsehood is the engine that drives sin. You can't sell sin without lying. And then he says of these purveyors of falsehood that they say, let him, let God make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. What's he waiting for? That's their very old taunt, their mockery of the God revealed through the faithful prophets of Israel. But God had an answer for their mocking then and he has... The same answer for mockers now. He said in the ne- he says in the next verse of Isaiah 5 and verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. These advocates of sin who call evil good and good evil, and there are a whole bunch of them around today, laugh at the God of the Bible. And they absolutely raffle at the thought that there are men and women stupid enough to worry about what God thinks of their lives. But that God, the only true God, will have the last laugh. You don't find a lot of occasions in the Bible where it says God laughs, but I'm going to show you one. Psalm 2. Written about a thousand years before Jesus came the first time. Listen to what King David says. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His Messiah. And what do they say? They say, let us tear His fetters apart. Their fetters. Let us cast away their cords from us. These mockers shake their fists at God. They say, we refuse to be under the thumb of a God like the one your prophets proclaim. Show us the evidence that He's worthy of our fear. Come on, show us. We don't see it. We cast off any accountability to His burdensome rules. We hereby declare our freedom from that God. In fact, we laugh at any man who would tell us that we have to bow down to any God that won't let us live the way we want to live. But God has an answer for their laughter of derision. Psalm 2, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. And He will say, But as for Me, I have installed My King upon Zion, My holy mountain. And then David records the words of that glorious king and judge as he relates what his father has promised to him. The second person of the Trinity declares, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will rule them with a rod of iron. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will shatter them like earthenware. And then David gives a final warning to the arrogant mocking kings of the earth. He says, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Pay homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. And then he finishes with a positive statement. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. (laughs) The the juxtaposition, the contrast of that negative and that positive are just amazing. The The fear of God that eludes the godless is the very fear that attracts the godly to the One, the only One, who is worthy of any fear. The righteous Judge of all mankind is our gracious Redeemer and Deliverer. And He's going to accomplish both of those at the same time. The mockers were saying the same things in David's day a thousand years before Jesus came. And they were saying them in Isaiah nearly 700 years before Jesus came. They were saying the same things about God's declaration of coming judgment against sin and sinners that they're still saying now. But in their confident boasts and their scornful, high-handed mockery against God, they are studiously ignoring God's own crystal clear revelation of two critical realities the first fatal error that they're making is a failure to recognize the very simple difference between judged and reserved for judgment. They act as if the God of the Bible had threatened to execute His judgment against sin and sinners right here, right now. So when they look around and see that that's not happening, they conclude that His threat of judgment is all bark and no bite. It's not to be taken seriously. But the foundational problem with their argument is that that's not the warning that the God of the Bible has actually given to unrepentant sinners. God never says that He's going to fully and finally do away with sin and sinners here and now. He never says He will deal with sin as soon as the sin happens. Instead, He says over and over and over again in both Testaments that there's a judgment coming. He makes it crystal clear that just as the full realization of the believer's hope in Jesus Christ is deferred until Jesus returns, so also the full realization, the complete outpouring of God's uncompromising, literally earth-shaking judgment against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men is deferred until Jesus returns. Both the hope of God's people and the judgment of the godless are deferred. And since God declares repeatedly and emphatically through dozens of prophets and apostles over thousands of years that His judgment of sin and sinners is deferred until the coming, the return of His righteous judge, whose response is actually worthy of mockery? The believer who humbly orders his life here and now in anticipation both of that coming judgment of of the godless and of the redemption, the coming redemption of, of the children of God, or the arrogant, godless man who looks around now doesn't see any evidence of that judgment and concludes that he has nothing to fear, that he can do whatever he wants. Which one is the fool worthy of being mocked? The first fatal flaw in the mocker's argument is the failure to recognize the difference between judged and reserved for judgment, kept for judgment. Their second fatal flaw has to do with one very compelling demonstration that God has already given to mankind in real human history. A demonstration that proves that His destructive wrath against our sin is the most terrifying of all threats known to man. God already executed one cataclysmic worldwide judgment. We call it the Great Flood. So do about 30 other cultures that don't put it in biblical context. When God had finished executing that judgment, there were only eight human beings still breathing on the whole face of the earth. Does that sound like a God that you want to be caught mocking? Notice what Peter says here about the spoken word of God. He says, it was by the word that came from the mouth of God that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And then he mentions God's word one more time in verse 7. He says, but the present heavens and earth by His word are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God spoke a long time ago. And all that we see came into existence. And He used the water that He had created right after creating light to lay things out just the way He wanted them. He separated the waters on the surface of the earth from the waters in the heavens above. And then in the days of Noah, He spoke again. He spoke a lot of times between those two, but... He spoke again in the days of Noah, and for 40 days and 40 nights, he brought down upon the earth that same water that he had originally bound up in the heavens above. And the flood that resulted wiped out every breath of life on earth except for eight people that he graciously chose to save. Both God's creation of every created thing and his fiercely destructive judgment of all that he has created are accomplished by nothing more than His spoken Word. He doesn't even have to break a sweat to do either of those things. Does that sound like a God that you want to be caught mocking? Here's another question. Have you thought much about which of the world's lies blind men most to their desperate need for Jesus I don't believe it's the lie that says God doesn't exist. I don't believe it's the lie that says God is too weak to do anything about evil and injustice. I believe it's a much more popular lie than either of those. The lie that says God is so loving that sinners have no reason to fear Him. The lie that says that God's love demands that He tolerate our sins. Does that sound familiar? When you see a beautiful rainbow stretch across the horizon after a pleasant rainfall, do you ever stop to ponder what it actually pictures? In Genesis 9, God told Noah that he would set his bow in the cloud as a memorial, a vivid reminder to every generation of mankind and of all creatures of His promise never again to judge the world by water. So does the rainbow then mean that God will never again judge the world? That God's done with cataclysmic judgments against man and creation because of man's sin? Peter says that's not the case. But even the memorial itself should make that obvious. Beloved, the rainbow isn't a harp. It isn't a halo. It isn't a big multicolored teddy bear. It's a bow. It's a weapon. It's an implement used to take life, not to give life. When Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of armies, the God who commands the armies of both men and angels, sets His bow in the heavens as a reminder to men, do you really think He does so to give us warm fuzzies about our sin? You think He put that bow in the sky so that we would plaster rainbow bumper stickers on our cars and put rainbow backgrounds on our Facebook icons that celebrate our tolerance... Of every denial that men can come up with of his design for sex and marriage. That proudly proclaim that that tolerance is good and godly. When Satan decides to co-opt a God-given memorial, he throws all caution to the wind. And so do the godless men who happily do his bidding. How must it grieve God when some of the people proudly celebrating that same tolerance profess to be children of Jesus Christ? Believers. Some of them are. I think some of them are. But how must it grieve God when we, we uncritically embrace that kind of nonsense? When men mutate the God-given memorial of His fiercely destructive judgment in the past against sin and sinners into a supposed memorial of His tolerance of man's sin, they're not just treading on a very thin layer of frozen water, they're shaking their fist at the consuming fire. Peter makes a brilliant understatement here that these things about God escape the noticed the notice of godless men that phrase escapes their notice comes from the same word that the writer of hebrews used when he said in hebrews 13:2 do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it in other words they've they've entertained angels and it escaped their notice that they were angels now Those people had no way at the time to actually know that they were showing hospitality to angels, right? The the angels looked like human beings, which is the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. It was easy to miss the fact that they were angels. But that's not the problem Peter's addressing here, is it? This is Peter mocking the mockers. He's saying, somehow, it escapes the notice of ungodly men that God hates them, even though He once extinguished every breath of life on the whole face of the earth except for eight souls. They just kind of let that connection slip right by them. And somehow, it escapes their notice That for 1,500 years, the faithful prophets and apostles of God have been saying the same thing about God's judgment that the Son of God said when He was right here among us. That the ungodly world of ungodly men is being kept by God reserved for a judgment yet to come. A judgment that will consume the earth and all of its works in fire. Somehow, all of those forceful and uncompromising declarations by God's messengers and by Christ himself just kind of slipped right by them. This is Peter mocking the mockers. God does have a sense of humor and it's pretty sarcastic. When the coming judgment finally comes, men may still protest that they somehow didn't know that God was actually serious about his hatred of sin. But those protests will be caused only for scorn from the God who created them because that one true God has faithfully given to all mankind all the evidence they could possibly need to know without a doubt that we will all be held accountable for our high-handed violations of His holiness. For every man, woman, and child since Adam Either Christ already bore the penalty for those grievous violations or the sinner will bear that penalty upon himself for all eternity. Which is true of you? The difference between those two sinners, we're all sinners, the difference between those two sinners is faith in Jesus Christ or the absence of faith in Jesus Christ. Peter uses the same word here for escapes notice one more time when he turns his attention to us, to believers. In verses 8 through 10, and again, he lays out two realities that we must not allow to slip by us. Beloved, the first is God's reason for delaying His coming judgment against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Peter knows that even some of us who trust in, who believe in and belong to Christ might have a little trouble understanding why God has allowed all the sin and suffering in this world to persist for so long. So he straight up tells us what's actually going on. First, he says we need to understand that God doesn't reckon time the way we do. To Him... A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is like a single day. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't know the difference. It means that the unchangeable, eternally existing God does not see a couple of thousand years as very much time. And probably after two or three hundred thousand years in His presence, you and I won't either. But Peter's point here focuses on God's reason for the delay of His coming judgment. That reason is very simple. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient toward you. And the you, the y'all, plural, that He's addressing are the same people He just called beloved. God is patient toward his elect, his chosen people. And he will not execute his judgment against this godless world until he has gathered in every last one of his chosen people. Now we know he's not talking about all men. He's not saying all men will be saved because he just talked about the certainty of God's coming day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men most of mankind will suffer that terrible and eternal judgment. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ will not. And Jesus said that way is narrow and there are few who enter by it. So the first reality that we as God's redeemed must not miss here is the reason for the delay. That reason is that Christ's gracious work to seek and save that which is lost is not yet finished. And by the way, we're the agents of God through whom that work is being completed. The second reality that Peter says we must not miss is the absolute certainty that God's warnings of the coming judgment will be fulfilled. The powerful point of verse 10 is seen in the repetition of the future tense. God will. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up. Peter's not saying this is what what I think is going to happen. <laughs> this is what's going to happen. This must never escape our notice, beloved. We must never allow this truth to wander far from our constant awareness that this earth and all of its works are doomed to destruction. Our hope is not in anything that we find in this cursed cosmos. It's all going to burn. Our hope is in the very great deliverance that will accompany that judgment. Our hope is in the one who is both judge of all the earth and deliverer of his chosen people. His explicit reason for delaying both that judgment and that deliverance is so that others may enter in to that same unassailable hope that most of us here this morning already possess. When the coming judgment comes, it will come like a thief it will be a big surprise if there's anyone here who's putting off falling on his or her knees in humility before the King of all the earth and trusting only in Him, Jesus Christ, to save your soul. Putting that off is the ultimate foolishness. It's as smart a gamble as playing Russian roulette with five bullets in a six-shot revolver. God is not going to give you a two-minute warning. When His Son returns to judge the whole earth, there won't be any second or third or twentieth chances it will be time for judgment. Do you know how that's going to shake out for you? If you don't, please come and talk to me or to anyone you know here who will open their Bible to show you what God has to say about your eternal destiny. Finally, because because we as the body of Christ are the ongoing presence of our Savior and Master in this world until He returns, everything Peter just set before us has huge revolutionary implications for how we live now. That's what Peter's going to talk about in the last verses of this epistle that we'll look at next week. He's going to talk about the life-defining ramifications of the coming judgment and the coming deliverance. So, stay tuned. Dear Father, You've been very clear about what's coming we ask that You would humble every heart in this room to respond rightly to that gracious revelation today and every day until all is fulfilled at our Lord's glorious return. We ask it in His incomparable name. Amen.